Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel. What pushes you back year after year to the front lines, even when you know that the dangers are extreme and the challenges are high? There was no distinction between civilians and soldiers. You rationalize things the way it works best for you in your mind. And the choices that I felt that I faced were either death or insanity. Shooting War is a new documentary by The Globe and Mail about how and why nine photojournalists work in war zones. One of them is Santiago Lyon. I think Winston Churchill once famously said there's nothing so exhilarating as to be shot at without result. Santiago is now the head of advocacy and education at the Content Authenticity Initiative, where he works to combat misinformation. Before that, though, he was with the Associated Press for 25 years, first traveling the world as a photographer and then as director and vice president. He's covered armed conflicts from Bosnia to Afghanistan. We'll talk to Santiago about how smartphone cameras have changed photojournalism, how we understand trauma and PTSD among photojournalists, and why he decided to stop photographing war. This is The Decibel. Santiago, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Can I ask, how did you know that you were cut out to be a photojournalist, and and in particular, one who covers conflict? Ah, that's a good question. You know, I started my career in photography straight out of high school in what was supposed to be a gap year between high school and college, and I started working in journalism in Spain, translating news from Central America at that time, which was the mid-1980s, from Spanish into English. And the stories were, to my mind, almost incredible. Uh, Stories of guerrilla warfare, insurgency, uh, massacres, rape, pillage, and I was just completely sort of amazed and astonished that this kind of thing was happening in real life. And I determined at that time that I really needed to go see that with my own eyes. And an older colleague of mine, when he heard that, he said to me, kid, if you want to see that stuff, you should become a photographer because they have to see everything first person. Hmm. Santiago, I'd like us to listen here to a clip from the documentary Shooting War um, that you and several other photojournalists were interviewed for. Uh, So let's listen to the clip and and then we'll talk about it. Photographers are are defined to some degree by the lasting images that they have, the ones that sort of remain when all is said and done. And most accomplished photographers can point to a couple of images typically over the course of their careers. One is an image from the siege of Sarajevo And so we found a way where we could see the image and be in relative safety, but it wasn't quite good enough for me. And so I went out a little further into the street, hiding behind a a garbage container, and it still wasn't good enough. I wanted, there wasn't enough information in the story. And so I waited until more cars came. And then I thought I needed to slow the shutter speed down in order to get a little motion in the cars. And this is sort of the level of focus and concentration that was in my head in the middle of a potentially life-threatening situation. What were you taking a picture of there? 
So this was a picture of a body of a, a woman who uh, had been walking, by all accounts, into Sarajevo and had been uh, shot by a, a sniper. Uh, and her body was laying there in the, uh, on the sidewalk in the sort of next to the road. This was very early on in the siege of Sarajevo and there were very few journalists at that time inside the city. And we drove past the, um, the body and my colleagues in the car didn't notice it and I noticed it out of the corner of my eye and so we swung around did a sort of a U-turn and and made this picture of this woman's body in the street as cars sped by behind and it became one of the sort of iconic images to some degree of the siege of Sarajevo certainly at the time because it was one of the only images available but these days, I mean, everyone has an iPhone or a smartphone that they're carrying around. They have good cameras. And essentially, anyone can document things in pictures. So I wonder, what is the difference in your mind between an average person documenting the things that they see and a photojournalist doing that? I think it has to do to some degree with preparedness. And some people automatically take out their smartphone and start documenting the scene. And it can be every bit as effective as the imagery that's gathered by a professional photographer. I think what a professional photographer often brings to the scene, however, is a sense of composition that might not be immediately obvious. I think the difference is that the professional can often, through their training, document quieter moments. And the goal is to communicate as opposed to shock. And that doesn't always happen automatically. In other words, just pointing a camera at a scene and pressing the button is often not enough. You need to parse the scene visually in order to compose the storytelling elements of the scene. So every scene is going to have a, you know, different components. It's going to have a foreground. It's going to have a background. It's going to have potentially motion, it's going to have scale, it's going to have uh, emotion, it's going to have drama. And does storytelling generally have a creative or an artistic component to it? Probably, in the same way that when a writer is putting a sentence together, you know, they're cognizant of the structure of the sentence, they're cognizant of the vocabulary that they choose, they're cognizant of the elements, and I think it's, it's similar in photography, it's just visual as opposed to written. Of course, these days, the war in Ukraine is happening, and this has captured a lot of the world's attention. Are you looking at the photos that are that are coming out of Ukraine? Yeah, I am. I have a lot of friends there who are still working in that in that line of work and And one of the things that sort of resonates for me is having covered the disintegration of the former Yugoslavia in um, you know, Croatia and in Bosnia and lastly in Kosovo, the aesthetics of the scenes from Ukraine are very similar in the sense of the sort of you know, communist era architecture, the kind of clothes that people in uh, Eastern Europe often wear. Uh, and then of course the scenes of grief and the scenes of horror uh, understanding that the situation in Ukraine is on a, a, a far larger scale militarily than the situation in Bosnia. But yeah, I look at the images and they, they resonate and I ask myself, you know, like a lot of people, have we learned nothing? Um, why are innocent people being killed by the military in 2022? Like, what's going on? 
Let's switch a little bit to talk about kind of the experience of, of working in these these conflict zones. I think these days, journalists are, are more encouraged, frankly, to talk about difficult experiences, different, difficult assignments. And there's been a bit of a shift in the industry towards that being accepted. Uh, but this was not really the norm 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Did you feel that you could talk about the difficult things that you saw and, and, and experienced in the field? At the time when I was doing war photography, which was the decade between 1989 and 1999, um, no, it was a very sort of macho culture where you were expected to solve your problems at the bar. You know, I sensed quite early on in, in my career, having been through some harrowing experiences, that something was amiss, but I didn't really know what it was. And when I found out what it was, when I was diagnosed, you know, fairly early on as um, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, my fear was that if I disclosed that to my employers, that I would somehow be prevented from returning to the field because there was this, you know, tremendous stigma associated with mental health. And really the person who changed that was Dr. Anthony Feinstein. His work in this field has been remarkable because he undertook the first, to anybody's knowledge, the first clinical study of the effects of long-term exposure to war among journalists. And I was a part of that study in the late 1990s, and the results of that study really opened a lot of people's eyes and caused a lot of media organizations to look at the issue of mental health through an entirely different lens. And now I'm happy to say that while there is still stigma around mental health generally, unfortunately often there is much less stigma around mental health in journalism and people feel safer about talking about it and media companies offer resources and counseling and things of that nature. So a lot has changed in these 30 years. Hmm. Well, let's let's talk about the work that uh, Dr. Anthony Feinstein does then. Uh, let's listen to another clip from Shooting War uh, where, where he's speaking. So let, let's hear that now. If you look at soldiers, veterans, they might have one tour of duty, maybe two, you know, quite unusually three, and then they don't do it again. But this is a group of individuals that have done it for decades. Yeah, so to hear him say that, talk about that repeated exposure, I mean, what, what, is that, what does that mean to you? You know, it's true. Um, people who do that line of work tend to keep doing it <clears throat> for as long as they can stand it. Um, I did it for a decade, and I covered, I think, eight wars around the world, as well as numerous other smaller disturbances and conflicts. And by the time uh, I was done, I was completely burned out. I was, you know, convinced that I only had two paths in front of me. One was death, because I had lost a lot of colleagues over the years uh, to violent deaths some of them very close friends. And the other option that I saw was insanity because I, I could feel that the psychological effects, the sort of cumulative psychological effects of everything that I had seen over that decade were weighing very heavily on me. And so I, at some point, you know, pulled the handbrake as it were and said, okay, we're done here. Thinking that by doing that, um, you know, my problems were over and I could just sort of put that behind me. What I didn't um, realize or anticipate at all, and which hit me like a ton of bricks, was a massive identity crisis that I had after that. 
because I had been doing that line of work for a long time, and I had been doing it for uh, you know to a very high level. I had been winning awards. I was recognized as one of the sort of you know perhaps more respected uh, people in that line of work. I had a reputation. It was entwined completely with my identity. And so when I stopped doing it, I really didn't know who I was anymore. And added to that, the sort of the, the cumulative effects of the trauma came roaring back. And I spent a couple of, of very, very difficult years processing my experiences, but it was excruciatingly difficult. Much more difficult, I would say, than anything that I went through in the field covering conflict. Yeah, you were at the, like, the top of your game, like you were at the top of Associated Press. And I guess it takes time in a way, I guess, to kind of come down from that in a sense. Well, it takes time and it also takes help, you know, because one of the problems that often arises if you're exposed to those types of horrifying situations for a long time is that the memories become very intrusive and they present themselves when you really don't want them to present themselves. Mm. And so a lot of the work is about how to um, file the memories. It's not to forget them because those experiences are quite literally unforgettable, but it's really to put them on the right shelf in the right place um, so that they're there when you want to visit them, but they don't come leaping off the shelf into your mind, um, you know, unexpectedly. Yeah. Santiago, you said in, in the documentary that when you stopped this line of work, you decided to stop, quote, cold turkey. And usually that's language we use for addiction often. I, did getting out of covering war, did it feel like recovering from addiction in a way? Well, I've not recovered from addiction to drugs or alcohol, but um, there certainly was something very compelling about that line of work. You know, I think adrenaline was certainly part of it. I think Winston Churchill once famously said, there's nothing so exhilarating as to be shot at without result. I think it's also a certain amount of escapism because when you're in a conflict zone, you're focused on telling you know, the important stories that are happening at that particular place at that particular moment, but you don't have to worry about the day-to-day -day things that most people have to deal with. You, know, you don't have to worry if your washing machine is broken or you know, domestic things like that. And it also feels very privileged because you really have a front row seat um, witnessing history. And not only are you witnessing history, but you are the conduit of history to many, many more people. So the combination of those things make it extraordinarily compelling. And I think that that's one of the difficulties in stopping is uh, not only are you not doing something compelling anymore, uh, in addition you have the, the uh, issue of identity that I mentioned before. And so I think it is in some ways akin to uh, recovery, um, respecting the differences, of course. Yeah. And you, you did eventually stop, though. Uh, what, what do you do now for work instead? So I spent almost 15 years overseeing the entirety of the AP's photo report around the world. So I was overseeing a, an army, if you like, of about a thousand uh, visual journalists around the world um, with everything that came with that, safety, security, mental health, all of those kinds of things. And then I started working for Adobe, uh, the software manufacturer, and for the last year and a half or so, I have been working on a major industry initiative to combat mis and disinformation mm. that Adobe is heading up called the Content Authenticity Initiative, 
which is a large community of um, many hundreds of media and technology organizations working to identify and implement technical solutions to uh, combat mis and disinformation, which is becoming a real scourge uh, in our society. So in some ways, it's a very logical extension of my life's work, just approached from a, a, a different uh, perspective. People are constantly bombarded with images these days. Like we talk about social media, but really the internet in general, there's, there's just tons of images to see at any time. Do you think this proliferation of, of pictures has desensitized us to what's behind these images or what these images really mean? Um, to some degree, I think there is a tendency to sort of glance and swipe and glance and swipe. So the user habits, especially of younger generations, have certainly changed. But even with that said, I think imagery remains a very powerful medium and a medium that is universal in the sense that you know, it doesn't require translation. It certainly requires context, and that's a, uh, something that we're t attempting to address uh, in the fight against mis and disinformation. So it's certainly something that is a reality, and I think that it's uh, changed in some ways the way people tell stories visually. Mm. Instead of relying on a few pictures, now the tendency is to combine multiple visual elements, could be still pictures, video, infographics, audio, text. And we see that a classic example of that and the efficiency or the efficacy of that is in things like Instagram stories, where all of these elements can be condensed while the time um, needed to consume it is short. The density is such that in a very short amount of time you can learn a lot about a particular topic. I wonder, is there a photo or a series of photos or an Instagram story recently that you've seen that's cut through the noise in a way, that stood out uh, from everything else? I saw one quite some time ago now that stuck in my mind, uh, and it was a story about a camel racing festival in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the photographer is a woman named Tasneem al-Sultan, uh, a very talented uh, Saudi photographer. And she was able to tell the story of this gathering by incorporating herself into the story and by documenting people's reactions to her hmm. as a woman in a very, you know, patriarchal society in some ways. And she was able to inject her perspective. She was able to inject her sense of humor. It was really quite engaging. And one of the things that I've noticed is that individuals' Instagram stories are often much more interesting than institutional inst Instagram stories because journalism traditionally has attempted to keep a distance. And I think while there is certainly value to that, increasingly people crave more than just the dry facts and they, they're interested in knowing how did the, f the, the photographer or the visual journalist get there? What was the reaction to their presence? The sort of the story behind the story, if you like. Mm -hmm. And that's what these storytelling techniques afford. And I'm starting to see now mainstream media is beginning slowly to shift into that sort of first-person storytelling. And I think it's very encouraging because if, if by telling stories from a more personal perspective, we can enhance engagement and attention being paid to those stories, then I think we're succeeding as visual storytellers. The best book in the world is no good if nobody reads it. 
Santiago, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Sure, my pleasure. The documentary, Shooting War, premieres at the Hot Docs Festival on Monday, May 2nd, and it'll be available for streaming at hotdocs.ca. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our intern is Emily McPhail. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.